Yeah, <laughs> I believe the kids are going to the back to dismissed. Um, children and youth are dismissed to the back. Good morning, everyone. I'm not sure it was a good morning till I said it. <laughs> it's like, good morning, everyone, like two people. All right. The rest of us, good morning to you, too. Um, so this morning, we're going to be continuing our current sermon series looking at the parables of Jesus. Again, we kind of just came out of the season of Advent where we held on and remembered to the idea of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. That the God who knows radiance takes on skin. That the God of heaven comes to earth to teach us how to live and love. But, but as we specifically now turn to the parables of Jesus, we're reminded of Jesus as a teacher, the one who starts with our understanding and builds on it. And as we tell these parables, our goal here is to remember that Jesus desires to transform. Right? He wants to transform not just uh, uh, us individually, but he wants to transform the way we think about God, about ourselves, about life, about this world itself. And Jesus has all these different ways to teach. But the parables are one of my favorites because he takes everyday common stories, things that people knew, reference points that everyone in the audience would have got, and he usually has a message towards the end. You know, so it's these everyday stories with these kingdom meanings. And so Jesus will always, in these parables, start with a base of understanding and add on to it and add on to it. But his desire here is not just to tell you a cute story to remember, but it's to transform you and to actually get you to see something that's a value of the kingdom. So the parable then are able to start where you are. And the, the idea behind this is that we want to carry you or Jesus desires to carry you to be closer and closer to God. Now, upon further reflection, and for some of us who grew up in church, who've read some of these parables, who are familiar with these parables, I think Wearsby is the one who says that we must be reminded that these parables are both a mirror and a window. As a mirror, it kind of gives us a chance to see ourselves. Who are we before God? Who are we before our world? What do we look like? But then also as a window, it's a chance to look out and to see how God sees the world, how God sees our place in the world and how this kingdom is supposed to come. Last week, we, we began formally the series by looking at the parable of the mustard seed. A reminded that God's kingdom starts small, but grows big. It starts in obscurity, but it ends in glory. And that God's kingdom, like that small mustard seed that's going to grow, it lives inside all of us and that we are all called to not only grow the kingdom, but as we grow, that like the kingdom, we may be home. That this kingdom which starts inside of us, this kingdom that grows through the church, is a home for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So this morning, now that we know that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, we're going to start looking at parables that tell us some values of the kingdom. We've built the foundation, we're going to keep adding to it, and one of the first values we're going to look at of the kingdom is forgiveness. And kind of the lens to kind of help us hold on to what does God mean by forgiveness or the role of forgiveness in the kingdom, we're going to look at the parable of the unmerciful servant. In your Bible, it says Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I'll start reading at verse 21. We'll also have it up front so you can follow along there as well. I'm reading from the NIV, starting at verse 21 of Matthew 18. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or some translation, 70 times, seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold and to repay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when, the sa- when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw that, what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray together. Our God who forgives, teach us how to forgive. Our God who loves, teach us how to love like you love. Our God who graces, teach us to grace as you grace. Our God of mercy, help us to be your merciful. Lord, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for these stories. We thank you for this chance now to to zero in on this value of the kingdom, this tenet of our faith about the forgiveness that brings us in, about the forgiveness that ties us to you, about the forgiveness that shares your love and mercy, about the forgiveness that sets us free, but also about the forgiveness that sets others free, that draws others to you, that blesses our world around us. In your holy and precious name, amen. So one of the things that is really, really fascinating to me about this passage is where it falls in scripture. A lot of times we read scripture either like, it's like, this is my devotional for the day. I open my section and this is where I am. But a lot of us don't think about the structure of scripture. It's just not what we do, right? Not too many of us bring up that I want to look at the chiastic breakdown of this passage, right? I want to look at how they decide to piece it all together. And a lot of times you can get through that in scripture where you're just like, I read a portion, I'm good. But I think what's interesting in Matthew 18 is that this is such an intentional placement by, the, by Matthew as he puts together not only these sermons of Jesus, these stories of Jesus. Because what Matthew does is that he starts off kind of talking with this question that kind of defines humility, right? The, the, the disciples know what Jesus has been saying for years, right? They've been with him two, three years. They know where he's ending up, right? And as they come before him, they actually have the audacity to be like, well, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Like, like, we know, like, you know, who gets to sit next to you, right? We got Father, Son, Spirit. Who gets to be number four? Like, do I get to sit up there? And, and Jesus' answer is, is, is those who are willing to come in as a child. And Jesus' answer isn't who is great in power, who's great in word, who's great in deed, but it's who's great in humility and faith. And as you trek through Matthew, you get to this portion where, where then the, the, the question becomes, well, what is forgiveness? And I think what's fascinating, Matthew 18, starting at verse 21, is Jesus gives his teaching about interpersonal forgiveness. I think this is one of the greatest passages in all of scripture, but also I think in all of human thought. 
Jesus gives us the way to, to not just handle conflict, but he actually gives us the, 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 the whole one, two, three step of how he wants us to engage in conflict. So what's interesting here is as Jesus talks about interpersonal forgiveness, he begins by talking about your brothers and your sisters. So what Matthew 18 is for is not for the Christians and everyone on the outside, although those principles might work, right? If, if your neighbor or your best friend or your family member is not a Christian, these principles might work, but that's not Jesus's point. Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold you to an even higher standard for you and your brothers and sisters. And as you have people who believe in the faith that you're in relationship with, this is what I'm calling you to do. So what is he calling us to do? He says, if someone sins against you, I want you to go directly to that person. Automatically for some of us, we're eliminated, right? Because someone sins against us, we want to tell you about it. Not you who sinned against us, but everybody else. When, when, when someone sins against us or harms us, we want to, to not only tell the world about it, but we ignore that Jesus' first command in dealing with this conflict or dealing with harm is to go directly to the person. And you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to have a PhD in conflict resolution to know that if there's a problem or an issue with somebody, going directly to the person is usually the best thing to do. So that's the first step. He says, if your sister, if your brother sinned against you, I want you to go directly over to them. And there's an interesting verse at the end of the verse. There's an entry phrase where he basically says, I want you to go to them. Not just because they sinned against you. Not just because they harmed you. I want you to go to them so you can win them over. And that's different. That's different than saying, I want you to go to them so you can get your pound of flesh. That's different than saying, I want you to go to them so that you can prove how right you are. That's different than saying, I want you to go to them so you can tell them how horrible of a person they are. He says, I want you to go to them so that you can win them over. Jesus sees the conflict. He sees the harm. And he says, I want you to be about reconciliation. I want you to remember that you belong to one another. I want you to remember that the ultimate goal is redemption. It's reconciliation. It's you and your sister, you and your brother being on that same page. And hopefully that first time you go, you have a conversation, you're able to say, hey, this is what happened. And hopefully the person is able to not only hear you, but they're able to, 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 to confess to you and they're able to take full ownership of the harm that they've done. And everything goes well. But if it doesn't, he says, I want you to go back. But I want you to go back with two to three sisters and brothers in the faith. And because Jesus wants us to be reminded again that our faith is not individual, that we belong to one another. And so he says, I want you to go back with two to three brothers in the faith, or two to three sisters in the faith. And this is important because he's actually harking back to Old Testament thinking. Because in the Old Testament, the voice of one wasn't that important. What was important and to establish testimony was what? The voice of two or three. So he's not just picking random numbers. He's saying it's in our law. It's in our culture, it's in our understanding that for something to be real and true, get two or three. So the second time that you go back, you go back and with two or three you say, my sister, my brother, you have harmed me. And before our community here, I want you to, to, to kind of what we said in the first round, to not only acknowledge your harm, to not only take ownership of your harm, but in that confession, I want to forgive you. And again, hopefully that goes swimmingly well. And that goes amazing. And everything is done right. 
But if that doesn't work, you've gone to the person, you've gone to through three sisters and brothers that you both trust and love, that trust and love you, they've gone before the person. He says, I want you to go before your community. And for most of us, this is frightening. It's terrifying. And I think it should be, but not for the reason we think it should be. It shouldn't be terrifying because of judgment we might receive from the community. It should be terrifying because every single person is going to hold us accountable to what Jesus holds us accountable for. That if Jesus says that when you confess and you forgive, you are to confess and you are to be forgiven. So I think it's, it's, it's scary to come before the community because what you're seeking here again isn't my rightness, isn't my pound of flesh, but is this idea of how do we become one again. So there's three steps. Go to the person directly. Go with two to three that you both trust. Go before the community. And then there's this fourth step. And I kind of have to park the car here a little bit because we as Anabaptists have been getting this wrong for, I don't know, almost 2,000 years. A lot of us have been reading this, whether you look at the Brethren in Christ or the, the Mennonites or the Mennonite Brethren or all the different Mennonites. We've been getting this passage wrong for a long time because in this thing it says if you go to a brother directly or a sister directly, it doesn't work out. If you go to or two or three and you both trust and it doesn't work out, you go before your community, it doesn't work out. Jesus says, I want you then to treat them like the pagan and the tax collector. And we forget how Jesus treats the pagan and the tax collectors. And we've used this verse as an excuse to literally kick people out of our communities, to literally shun people from our communities. In some Anabaptist circles, they still shun you because you didn't uh, either confess your sin or they felt you didn't ask forgiveness enough. This is a great sin, I think a great misinterpretation of this passage. Because if you look at Jesus, how did Jesus teach or how did Jesus interact with the tax collectors, the pagans, the Nicodemuses, the Samaritan woman at the well? Does Jesus kick them out of the kingdom? Does Jesus shun them? Or does Jesus love them? This isn't a passage to say if they don't ask for forgiveness or if they don't come to forgiveness, you kick them out. That's not what Jesus is saying, because remember, Jesus is our standard. And so how Jesus treats the tax collector, how Jesus treats Matthew, who writes this book, and Zacchaeus, is how we are to love the person, even if they're not repentant. The idea here, again, is not to push them out of the community, not to push them out of the kingdom, but to say now we will rely on the love of God and showing you the love of God and praying that God's spirit may intervene and bring you to that place of not just forgiveness, but also of redemption. And then he closes that passage by basically saying, the reason this is all important is because everything we do on earth matters in heaven. And for a lot of us, when we think about that, we think about the rewards to come. We think about the pearly gates and the mansions and the gifts and the crowns to come. But Jesus seems to believe that every conflict left unreconciled, every person left unforgiven, every time we choose ourselves over the community, every time we don't forgive a sister or brother, Jesus seems to think it matters not just on earth, but also in heaven. And then there's another verse, you know, we pick on the Anabaptists, that there's another verse in this passage that all Christians mostly get wrong. And I've done it for years. When you gather together, we say, what? Where two or three are gathered, 
there I am in the midst. And we use it in a term of witness, right? We do it in a term of, of worship. And you have to understand the little bit of arrogance we have, right? We are literally coming to church. We are designating this as God's house. So we're walking into God's house and be like, aren't we glad God is there? Imagine a family member comes to your house, opens your fridge, starts eating your food. And like, I'm so glad you're in your house. I'm so glad you're present. Where two or three are gathered, I'm so glad you live in your house, right? But what I think is scary about this verse is Jesus is reminding us that in the midst of your conflict, there I am in the midst. In the midst of this fight, there I am in the midst. For most of us, it's, it's kind of comforting to think of, I come to church, Jesus is there. But he wants us to know that in the midst of this conflict, I am here too. So Jesus gives us the paradigm. He gives us the steps. He lays it all out in Matthew 18. Go directly to your sister. Take two or three you both value. Go before the community. If all of that doesn't work, love them the way I have loved you. Don't shun them. But look at how I treated those on the outside, and I want you to love them that same way. Because everything you do on earth matters in heaven. And like normal, most of the people get it. Or at least they pretend to get it, right? Like normal, most of the people are just like, well, that sounds good to me. Thank you, Jesus. I got my little ABC chart. I'm ready to go. But Peter is going to Peter. And I love this man because I see a lot of myself in him. Peter is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture because I never have to doubt what he's thinking. I never have to doubt, does he really get it? I never have to doubt, is he just going with the flow? Because after all of this, you have to remember that when Jesus, uh, when I think it's John's beheaded, and Jesus preaches a sermon, and the disciples go out into the lake, and the wind starts blowing them back and forth, and Jesus says, okay, guys, it's cool, it's me, you know, but we think it's a ghost. He's like, no, it's me. Eleven disciples said, that's cool. Peter says, if it's really you, I want to come out and walk with you. You have to remember, this is the same Peter who Jesus looked him dead in the eye and says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he says, no, I will not. I'd rather die than run. And then he denied him three times. This is the same Peter that after that conversation, after Gethsemane, when the people come with weapons and from the chief priests and everyone gather to kind of take Jesus, the one who gave up his life, the one who said, not my will, but my father's will, the one who willingly is offering himself up, Peter pulls out a little dagger and says, you know what? I can't get all of you, but I'm going to get the high priest servant. Choo, cuts off his ear. You never have to wonder how Peter feels. And so after Jesus gives this prescriptive of like, this is how I want you to deal with conflict. This is how I want you to go. Peter says, well, well, well Jesus, I have a question. But the thing I love about Peter, and the reason I think he resonates with me, is not only because he, he doesn't deny the status quo, but yes, he calls out, are you really a ghost? But then he gets to walk on water, doesn't he? Yes, he says, I will not deny you three times. But Jesus gets to redeem him three times. And I love that passage too, because Jesus says, do you love me, Peter, the way I love you? And Peter goes, I love you, you're my brother. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Do you love me the way I love you? I would do anything for you. Do you love me that way? And he says, like, but Jesus, you're my brother. And then Jesus looked at him again and said, okay, fine, my brother. Are you willing to even start there? Are you willing to love me as a brother? And Peter says, that's all I got right now. And Jesus says, that's okay. I'm still going to put you as a leader in my church. A beautiful reminder that God is willing to start with everywhere where we're at. He might ask the world of you, but if all you're willing to do is give him that much, that's enough for him to start and build on it. And so Peter gets redeemed three times. And yes, he cuts off Malchus's ear, 
but he also gets to be part of Jesus' last miracle if you don't include the cross, because Jesus heals Malchus's ear. So Peter then is able to step into faith. He's able to go on the pathway to restoration. He's able to give God an opportunity to heal because he has questions. And it's a reminder to us that our questions are only threats to us, that our doubts are only threats to us, that we have a God who's big enough for all of our questions. You cannot outsmart God. You cannot think God. Matter of fact, there's no question you have this burning in your heart that's an original thought that millions of people haven't thought before. But yet we grew up in these settings, in these faith settings, where, or these churches, where when someone has a question, we think that's a bad thing. Peter had questions, and yet with his faith, he gets to walk on water. He gets to help build the church. And he gets to be part of miracle after miracle after miracle. Our questions are now bigger than our God. So when Peter comes, he says, okay, yeah, 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 they sin against me. And I love this because he doesn't assume that he's going to do the sinning, right? Like that's another thing that's inherent in this question. He's like, you know, yeah, when John messes up again, he comes against me. Like, so like, I know you want me to forgive him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if I forgive him seven times? But you have to understand that this is actually pretty gracious of Peter. A little arrogant, but also pretty gracious. Because in the Old Testament law, you know, the Jewish thinking and thought, you would forgive someone three times, right? So Peter's like, I'm not only going to do what they did, but because you're Jesus, I'm going to double it and add an extra one for spare. Seven times, Jesus. I'm going to forgive John seven times. And then Jesus says, well, <laughs> that's nice. But I want you to visit, I want you to forgive, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. I want you to hold on to that because I think it's so ridiculous that the people are like, so when you look at the translation, the actual Greek does say 70 times 7. But I think it seems so ridiculous to our thinking. We're like, oh, he meant 77. That must have been a, that must have been a typo, right? Like he meant 77. But Jesus' point is I want you to forgive always. Peter says, my law teaches me three. I'm going to be good, double it and add an extra for spare and give you seven. And Jesus' response is, I want you to forgive always. And then he begins the parable. He says, there's a king who wants to settle accounts. And one of the things that we, we kind of assume in this story is that the king is God. But when you see the character of the king, I don't think the king is God. I think Jesus is telling the story. Remember, every parable isn't meant to have everything represent something. So the king might have characteristics of God, but what this king does isn't what God does, right? Like God doesn't forgive and then change his mind. But we'll get to that. So this king is settling his accounts. And you have to go back to the cultural context. As the king is settling his accounts, this king lived on taxes. You're Americans, you can kind of understand that a little bit. Your taxes might not do anything for you, but you can understand the concept of taxes. And how the king lives on taxes is the king would hire people to go out and collect these taxes. And so when the king is selling his accounts, it's almost like April 15th for some of us, right? Or I don't know when the IRS collects and puts everything together. So we'll say May 15th. So the king is gathering everything together, looking at the books and seeing what money is coming in. And as he's going, he finds this one of his collectors who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. And that's a lot. But I don't think we understand how much that is. And I, a couple of years ago, I mentioned this in a sermon, and Rick Souter did all the work. And, and because the great state of Pennsylvania, you know, thinks that minimum wage should be 725 forever, I got to use the same chart. You know, because this is like minimum wage, 725, which is the most ridiculous thing. Right? Like, you can work 40 hours a week, work 52 weeks a year, and I think you get 15,000, we say, good luck with life. Right? 
So thank you, Rick. And then my, my chart, your chart is still good because we're still at 725. So that's what we're going to use. $7.25, right? Think about that for a second. That's the, that's the figure. Like not, most of you probably earn a little bit more than that, right? We're not even doing that. We're starting with the basic minimum wage in Pennsylvania. So that 10,000 bags of gold breaks down like this because each bag is like 20 talents, right? Or each bag is one talent, sorry. So now we have 10,000 talents. Each talent is 20 years of work. So again, 10,000 talents, one talent is 20 years of work. Each year is about $15,000. You do all that math you read Rick's chart, and this is what you come up with. The debt that he owed was over $3 trillion in today's dollars. Now, we're Americans, so we know a little something about debt. In fact, our national debt is pushing 30% or, or $30 trillion, right? So that was actually easy for me doing math because 10%, you just take the zero away. So this one person owes $3 trillion. We owe $30 trillion. So help me with my math, you know? America doesn't worry about their debt, so I figure I shouldn't either, right? But $3 trillion is what he owes. You know how massive $3 trillion is? Every single household to pay this debt in America would have to write a check for $22,000. Every single household. Every single person, including children. It's like, welcome to this world. To pay the debt, you owe $8,700. Every single American would owe $8,700. Or if you want to come up with a payment plan, right? They, debt people love to give you payment plans that you never get out of, right? But if you love to come up with a payment plan, if you say, okay, my house can only afford $1,000 a month. And if every house agreed to that $1,000 a month, it would take almost two years to pay the debt. Again, every single house in America is what we're talking about, right? Or let's dream a little bit. Let's do something positive. What if we went to all the kids in school and we said, you know what? We want to pay for your four-year college degree, all of you. We would be able to do that, right, for 7.2 years in a row for every single student right now. $3 trillion is a lot of money. If you want to make it even bigger, that's more money this person owed than the GDP or the gross national product of, of every country in the world, except America, China, Japan, and Germany. That's how much he owed the master. And it makes me think, how does this guy steal for so long and no one notices, right? Like, it just makes you think about it for a second. Like, 10,000 bags, it's like, okay, did he steal one bag and no one knows? How do you steal 10,000 bags and no one knows? Like, who's the accountant? Like, how does that slip by? Like, $3 trillion, right? That's just me. That's what I do for fun. But what we have to understand is that Jesus is saying that the debt is unpayable. No one person can pay the debt. And yet this person, this, this, this servant, drops to his knees and says, you know what, forgive me, I, I plead for mercy, I plead for help, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to pay the debt. Imagine if someone owes you $3 trillion, and they come to you and says, I will pay the debt. It's impossible. But yet the master sees him and says, you know what, I'm going to put your wife and your children in, 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 into prison. And he says, no, 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 I'm going to pay the debt. And, and the master, after he asked for mercy, is actually moved to compassion. And even after he knows that this debt is unpayable, he's so moved with compassion, he cancels all the debt. For those of you who have student loans in the room, you're like, ooh, that sounds amazing. It's just this, this hits a new, right? Like 20 years ago, this, this parable might not have hit, but now you're just like, ooh, this is amazing, right? But he cancels $3 trillion worth of debt. That's a big number. 
I would feel freer than when Jesus saved me. I'm not going to lie. Like three trillion dollars, that's a lot of money, right? And it's all wiped out, done. So he goes out, gets his family, feel good about himself. He's free. As he's walking out, he sees another servant. And this servant doesn't owe the master. This servant owes him. A hundred denarii which, if my math is correct, breaks down to $5,800. Not a small number, but compared to $3 trillion, a tiny number. He's forgiven $3 trillion. Yet he sees a servant who owes him $5,800. And he not only demands it, he grabs him, he chokes him, and he demands his payment. The friend falls to his knees, pleads for his mercy, and says, I will pay it back. I will work hard until I pay it back. And the one who's been forgiven, the one who's been greatly set free, the one who's had his slate wiped clean, forgets all that and takes that man who owed him $5,800 and throws him into jail. And it doesn't take long for others to see it, for their anger to boil and for them to go to the king. And when they go to the king, they said, you will not believe what three trillion did. You will not believe what he's doing for $5,800. You will not believe what he's doing right now. And so the king, who was first moved with compassion, is now moved with anger. Why? Because the servant is unforgiving. And so he calls him before him. And when he calls it before him, he says, you are wicked. I have given you mercy, but you have not forgiven. So then he condemns him to jail, to pain, and to death. And he says, Jesus closes by saying, this is the fate of those who don't forgive. But the reason I think this king is not like God is because when God cancels your debt, it's canceled forever. God's not going to go back on his forgiveness of your sins. However, however, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the New Testament writers, they will say things like this about people who don't forgive. Matthew says it like this, quoting Jesus, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins against you, your father will not forgive your sins. And Mark says it like this, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And Luke says it like this, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then John says it like this in the epistle, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. And I love this because we have so many definitions of love in this world and all of them are wrong. John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And then Paul to the Ephesians says what? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
We are all called to forgive because we have been forgiven. So what Jesus is talking about here is not your eternal salvation. That is secure. When God forgives that debt, that debt is wiped clean. But even after you're saved, we all struggle to still live right. We all stumble and fall. We all make mistakes. And what John and Matthew and Mark and Paul seem to be saying, that if you're not willing to forgive, God may not forgive you. And that's a really, really harsh word. But God seems to think that because I've forgiven you, I need you to forgive also. And I want to pause here and talk about forgiveness. Because I think a lot of times we, we talk about forgiveness, especially in church circles, we, we, we don't say some of the things that we need to say about forgiveness. But number one, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. It does not mean that your pain isn't real. It does not mean that you're not angry or it hasn't driven you to, to even hatred. Forgiveness does not mean you're forgetting. It just means you're forgiving. Forgiveness does not mean that there's no consequences. Our actions have consequences. Our inactions have consequences. Forgiveness does not mean that all the consequences are thrown out. Forgiveness also does not mean staying in the line of harm. It doesn't mean staying with someone who's going to keep harming you. It doesn't mean because you believe in God, you're going to put yourself in a situation where you can be harmed some more. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. doesn't mean your pain isn't real. doesn't mean you're staying where you're being harmed. doesn't mean there's no consequences. All forgiveness means is that you've been set free. And now God wants to keep setting you free. Because what happens when we don't forgive, quite often it's like us drinking the poison while the other person goes free. And then us sitting here and wondering, why am I sick? Well, it's because you keep drinking the poison. Put the poison down. Because forgiveness sets us free. And that's what God wants. Desmond Tutu died a day after Christmas. And, and growing up, he was one of my heroes of the faith. One of the first Africans, dark-skinned Africans I saw who was using his faith to fight for what was right. In his career, he was not only a priest and a theologian, he was a, what the kids call social justice warrior, which somehow that's pejorative, right? Like, fighting for other people seems to be a bad thing, right? Like, you're a social justice warrior. It's like, well, that's kind of cool, actually. I, I thank you, you know? Like, people are struggling. I fight for them. Good, right? But that's what he was. But he was also a peace advocate. And one of the things that he did is after apartheid fell in, in, in South Africa, Nelson Mandela has this coalition, right? And what's funny is when we kind of read this from the outside, we just seem to think like they were all united. Like I love when people are like, we're so divided today. I'm like, go to South Africa in 1989. Tell me about division, you know? They didn't even need Facebook to be divided. But Nelson Mandela is holding on for dear life, this coalition. Because here's the thing. Not everyone's a monolith, right? Like, there are some people who are like, listen, after, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of apartheid rule, like, we need to dish out what they did to us. And then there's people who are like, we need to kick them out of our country, all of them, right? They're from Dutch, send them back to the Netherlands, all of them, kick them out, right? And he's trying to hold on to all of this. And with Desmond, they come up with this idea of something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what I love about this commission is that their goal was to support 
was to actually give reparation to people in pain, but they were also going to, to report what was happening in the country. They were give people a chance not just to share their stories, but to share their stories for the purpose of healing. And so Tutu then teaches that when we think about forgiveness, it doesn't mean we get to ignore our humanity. Right? Like the sin has to be acknowledged. And he tells a story about the Craddock Four. The Craddock Four was uh, four leaders in, in South Africa during apartheid in the 80s. And they were doing rubble rousing, right? John, John Lewis calls it good trouble, right? Like they're going out there and fighting for their people. And the response by the South African government was to kill them and to burn them and to make them a spectacle. And so as part of this truth and reconciliation, one of the men who were killed, his daughter comes before Tutu. And she says, I'm still angry. I hate them. I want to forgive. I just don't know how. And Tutu looks at her and says, I don't want you to lose your humanity. But more than that, I don't want you to lose your soul. It's okay to acknowledge your hatred. It's okay to acknowledge your anger. anger. <laughs> it's not okay to be so consumed by it that you're in prison too. And that's what he's speaking to, is that the anger and hate might be present, but if it consumes you, you will never be set free. And that's why God calls us to forgive. Not because our pain isn't real. Not because we haven't been hurt. Not because it's not hard. Not because we're not struggling, but because God wants you to be set free. And God also wants you to look like God. That's our ultimate work. Not just to be set free, but to those who harm us, to those who even oppress us, to those who keep putting us in harm's way. Our job, our work, our ministry, our walk is to look like our God. So we need to forgive to set them free, but also to set us free. And that's why forgiveness is the core tenant of the kingdom. In a lot of our relationships, we think the big step is to say, I love you, but that is just the foundation. In all of our relationships, the big step is to be able to say, I'm sorry, I messed up, I fell short. And then the, the next step is to be able to say, I forgive you. I love you is a beautiful foundation, but if we're not people who forgive, we have no house. I love you is a beautiful first step, but if we're people who hold on to resentments and anger and don't forgive, it consumes us and we do not look like our Jesus. We tune out the Holy Spirit and we don't represent our Father to the world. Forgive because you have been forgiven. I'd like to invite the worship team up. But before we stand and sing, I want to give us a minute. I want to give us a minute. And, and in this time, maybe it'll just play slowly, you know, something to get us in the mood. But as they play, I want to give us a minute to wherever we are to do some business with God. Is there anyone in your life right now that you need to forgive? Is there anyone in your life right now that you need to ask forgiveness from? 
Is there anything in your life or that you've done that you need to put at the throne of Jesus, the throne of our Father, and ask for your forgiveness? If there's any pastors in the room, I'd like to invite them up front. Maybe you need prayer. We'd like to pray for you. Whatever is going on, we'd like to pray for you. Maybe it's this burden you've been carrying. We want you to be free. God wants you to be free. So as we come up, we want to give you a minute to spend that time with God. And after about a minute, we'll pray the the song. (laughs) We'll sing the song, Build My Life. But before we get to that song, just want to give you a minute to just do some work before God. Come before the Father. Come before the throne. Give to God your struggle. Give to God your pain. Come to God for forgiveness.
forgiveness that we enter into the kingdom of God. The love of God is the foundation that welcomes us in. The love of God is the foundation that makes it possible. But it's because of God's great mercy, his great love, his great compassion, with which he loves us, with which he graces us, with which he pours out on us, that we enter in. But it's also that same forgiveness that keeps sharing the love of God. So whatever burden you're carrying, bring it to God today. Whatever conflict you're wrestling with and fighting with, or whoever person you're fighting with, bring them to God today. And whatever you've done to bring conflict or to, 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 to stir up, you know, whatever you've done to hurt someone else, take ownership of that and go to them today. For in forgiveness, we come home again. Jesus says, go to them to win them over. In forgiveness, you can be set free. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your forgiveness. We thank you so much that, God, there's nothing we can do that you cannot forgive. We thank you that there's nothing we've done that you haven't seen before. So, God, release us of this burden to hold on to, 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 to what we've done or to try to hide it from you. Release us from this burden to not go and reconcile. Lord, if it's pride, we ask for forgiveness. If it's pain, we ask for healing. If it's just not being sure and doubting, we ask for even more faith. Not just our faith in you, but your faith in us. Holy Spirit, spur us on. God, we thank you that you've forgiven us so that we can forgive. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that your forgiveness makes healing at home possible. And Holy Spirit, we pray that as you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, that we can make decisions, that we can live in love, that we can forgive, that we can give grace and mercy and compassion like we have received. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you for your deep, deep love for us. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all. Have a good week. Also, I have a phone.